Welcome back to Shelter, a podcast from Rutgers University, Colab Arts, and the New Brunswick Theological Seminary. We're continuing our look at housing insecurities in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic and the role academic and religious institutions can play in partnering with the community to seek solutions. I'm Diana Molina. And I'm Scott Gurian. This is the sixth and final episode in our series. So if you're tuning in for the first time, we suggest you go back and start with episode one to hear the full story about this project and how it came about. If you've been listening since the beginning, you might remember that we mentioned back in our first episode that our theme song is a remixed version of On the Banks of the Old Raritan, which is the Rutgers University anthem. As we say in our credits, it was composed and arranged by David Seaman with help from percussionist Carlos Vasquez. And the way the music changes from the original early 20th century recording when Rutgers was completely white and male to the new version with the Afro-Caribbean beat Carlos provides on the bongos is intended to be a sort of musical representation of how our home city of New Brunswick has changed over the years in terms of demographics like race, ethnicities, and socioeconomic makeup. But while this has been happening, the city's academic and religious institutions have all too often fallen behind the times, both failing to work as forces for social good and in some cases being complicit in furthering the inequality that came along with that demographic change. That's right, Scott. Coming up on today's show, we'll look at how academic and religious institutions are re-examining their own histories with respect to people of color and economically struggling individuals in central New Jersey. Specifically, we're going to talk about Rutgers and the New Brunswick Theological Seminary, which were both founded in the late 1700s as religious institutions affiliated with the Reformed Protestant Dutch Church. They lived in covenant together in the same building, Old Queens, for the first half of the 19th century and continued sharing much of their space and history even after Rutgers became the State University of New Jersey, while the seminary retained its religious educational mission. Beyond these early shared origins, both Rutgers and the seminary were funded by wealthy leaders and ministers in the Reformed Protestant religious tradition, whose fortunes were connected to the institution of slavery, and some of them were even enslavers themselves. As we'll hear, Rutgers and New Brunswick Seminary have been grappling with these issues during this recent pandemic and time of racial reckoning across the country. At the Shelter Project, we're interested in how institutions like these can reimagine their work in a way that's accountable to the broader community. Of course, we're living in the context of other universities asking questions about their quote unquote troubled past and, you know, really thinking about how to engage with that. That's Dr. Alexandria Russell, who was a postdoctoral fellow on the Scarlet and Black Research Project, which Rutgers launched in 2016, ahead of its 250th anniversary. She says the project revealed problematic chapters in the university's history with respect to race. We are a land-grant institution. You know, the land was sanctioned uh, through the state and the federal government. And uh, how was it sanctioned? It was taken from someone. Um, And so we kind of explore that uh, in our first volume. But we also talk about how the university was built uh, through wealth and reputation through the enslaved labor of uh, Black people. You know, some were free, but most were certainly enslaved in New Brunswick. And had it not been by the wealth generated through slavery, you know, the university could not have sustained itself. 
Scarlet and Black was co-directed by historians Deborah Gray White and Marissa Fuentes. It began with a deep dive into the historical connections between slavery and the university, and it went on to examine the vestiges of racism and anti-blackness that have shaped cities and towns across the state of New Jersey, from the colonial era to the present. The project yielded a three-volume scholarly publication and digital archive that examines the history of race at Rutgers, starting with the dispossession of Native populations and continuing all the way to Black Lives Matter. Dr. Russell says that well into the 20th century, the university was not hospitable to Black students. Someone like Julia Baxter Bates was admitted because, you know, she looked white in her photo that she submitted with her application. And uh, once they saw that she was there, you know, they realized that she was a black woman. Similarly, her cousin, Malcolm Bates, uh, he went through his tenure at Rutgers as a white man. You know, there certainly is kind of this invisible wall you could say, that uh, has surrounded the campus in the past, and some may feel even is still there today. And part of not feeling welcome was that you didn't get to have the same uh, experience, you know, as white students would have had. And that meant that you couldn't, you know, live on campus. And at Douglas College, it wasn't until uh, 1946 that the dorms were desegregated. Even with the growing access for Black students, Dr. Russell says there was still a divide between the university and its students of color. But it's also important to note that despite the fact that um, previous generations did not have the opportunity to live on campus, they were a part of a vibrant Black community. And that community was certainly proud of what they were doing at Rutgers. Um, and so even as we move, you know, later down the line into the 60s and 70s, um, even with the addition of a place like Livingston, uh, where mass numbers of uh, African-American and Latinx students begin to attend the university and uh, begin to kind of make a unique and distinct space for themselves on campus. Um, it was a community that truly sustained them. What she means is that for all this time, while the school might not have engaged with local communities of color, its students found comfort there attending church services, participating in civil rights movement protests, and having dinner in the homes of New Brunswick residents. Little by little, these students claimed their rightful role as equal participants in campus life. They advocated for more Black students and professors. They pushed for the creation of an African-American studies department, and they succeeded in getting Rutgers to create a Black-focused housing and cultural center. I think you could argue that students, you know, of the 21st century may feel more comfortable on campus versus off of campus. And, you know, as the university expands and communities may be displaced or as generations um, may have moved in and then moved out, then what becomes the, the ongoing relationship between the community? I would say that, unfortunately, that wall is still a part of the conversation, certainly in a different way than when the first students entered, but also in a very different way from those uh, major student activists of the 60s and 70s and even the 80s who were very invested in embracing the surrounding community. 
Despite these lingering questions, she points to the important work currently underway to recognize these histories. For example, the university is now updating the language of historical markers around campus to acknowledge the roles Black and Indigenous people played in its history and the legacy of slavery that enabled the fortunes of many of the institution's founders. Dr. Russell also believes that an awareness of this history might promote new opportunities for the university with respect to people of color and its local community. I think now is a good time for people to speak up and to say to the university administrators, this is what we would like to be done. We appreciate that we know the past and that you are educating the public. But now there's also an opportunity for people to, you know, state their demands. (laughs) You know, if you were to ask somebody, well, what do you want to be done in this moment? I'd be interested to know what the answer would be. I think that is the best way to go about it versus, you know, having a a committee of people who may or may not live in New Brunswick come up with some answer. Let's ask the people themselves. John Coakley taught at the New Brunswick Theological Seminary for three decades and wrote a book about its more than 200-year history. He shared some of his knowledge as part of the early steering team for the Scarlet and Black Project. He says that for much of the seminary's history— Students were predominantly young white men drawn from the student body of Rutgers and Reformed churches. While there were a few notable black graduates in the late 1800s and early 1900s, it wasn't until the 1970s that the school began to think differently about its relationship to its local community and students of color. Dr. Coakley told the story of an important, unintended outcome of changes at the seminary by the late 1960s, with an event now known as the Hiram Street Affair. It started when the school developed a plan to do an exchange program with another seminary in the Midwest. The idea was that students' two years of classes in New Jersey would focus on questions of faith and society, engaging with local residents and reflecting on their experience. Realizing that they were going to have a bunch of new students, the faculty and administration decided that they really should house them in the city. You know, so that the students would be in the midst of the situations in which they were going to minister. I mean, you know, there's there's a real vision to this whole thing. And so they bought a defunct hardware store on Hiram Square. Now, nowadays, Hiram Square, you know, is kind of gentrified. It's had kind of upscale apartments, townhouses now for 20 years or so. But I remember when it still had old stores and housing from the 19th century, um, when we first came to town, it hadn't been redeveloped. And there was this decrepit hardware store, and they bought it, and they were going to refashion it for student housing. The community around it at that point was primarily Puerto Rican, and the community objected. The community organizers in the Hiram Street area said, you know, no, we don't have good housing for our own people in this area, and here you're talking about gentrifying it, basically, and bringing in privileged students. And the response of the seminary faculty was to try to listen. There were negotiations back and forth, and the seminary eventually agreed to include some low-income housing as part of the development. In the end, someone set fire to the building, and the school's board ended up walking away from the project and selling off the property at a loss. So you might think it's an episode in the seminary's history that folks would prefer to forget, but Coakley has a different perspective. I think it was a prophetic moment. It was a moment that showed not the righteousness of the school, not that the school did something wonderful, or that they were all in the right place on on social justice issues, but that they realized that if they were going to open themselves up to a broader ministry, then they were going to have to be willing to be changed themselves. And to me, even though it kind of was remembered as a failure in a sense, I think it's one of the best moments of the school's history. 
That incident, along with a shift to an evening program in the mid-1970s, ultimately led the school toward a more diverse student body, with students and faculty members representing a wider range of ethnicities, ages, and genders. These events extended the seminary beyond the city it inhabited, with more students of color from New York and the surrounding region, and an increased concern for urban communities and issues of racial and social justice. Flash forward to today, and 85% of the New Brunswick Theological Seminary's students are students of color, and both the seminary and Rutgers now have African-American presidents for the first time in their histories, so it's clear they're in a very different place. But it's also clear that their work is far from finished. Which brings us to the spring and summer of 2020, when Rutgers, the New Brunswick Theological Seminary, and Collab Arts received a grant of $150,000 from the Henry Luz Foundation to provide safe housing and social services to 32 central New Jersey households in the midst of the pandemic. Given that the problems of poverty and housing insecurity are often viewed through a purely political or economic lens, and there are countless charities and social service organizations that focus on this sort of work, you might be wondering why academic and religious institutions would be involved. So we posed that question to three members of our editorial team. Here's Kristen obrassel Colfin, who coordinates a public history program at Rutgers University, New Brunswick. I think that educational institutions are an ideal place to explore solutions to really pressing, urgent issues because it's one of the only contexts in which people are invited to think deeply about long-range historical, social, cultural, economic, and political contexts all at once. And to be able to kind of have the opportunity to address a problem that is facing somebody who you know in your actual daily life or who you encounter on a regular basis and then think intellectually, you know, how has this situation developed that led them to be, you know, sitting in this train station lobby on a daily basis and then step forward and think, how can I bring all of this knowledge together? What this person is living and experiencing and feeling physically and emotionally And then how do we understand that and actually shape what comes next? So I think that that's what education is about. It's taking something that you think you know and understand and breaking it apart and putting it back together again. And that's why I think that it's useful because everyone's bringing their own personal understandings as well as kind of maybe even faith traditions or, you know, social and political contexts to a question and collaboratively deciding how to answer it. Seminary professor Nathan Jeremy Brink told us that nowadays social justice is a key part of his institution's work. The watchwords of New Brunswick Theological Seminary are think critically, act justly, and lead faithfully. And if those are the motto by which our seminary as an educational institution is supposed to exist in the classroom and in the world... There has to be a shrinking of the distance between knowledge and intellectual pursuits as some kind of separate and distant enterprise from the world and where people actually live. Those things have to be brought together. If we teach black liberation theology, black feminist theology, womanist theology at this institution, we owe it to our students to be engaged in things that shrink that distance between theology as an academic discipline and service as integral to who we are in this faith tradition and how we can possibly 
bring about more just relations in the world and faith traditions that not only respond with a kind of shallow charity for people who are vulnerable and marginalized, but rather that that becomes the dominant narrative of one's faith tradition in a really transformative way. And here's Colin Yeager, who directs the Rutgers Center for Cultural Analysis. I think at their best, both faith institutions and educational institutions are able to see the whole person or something close to the whole person. That happens sometimes in our teaching when things go really well. Um, It's sort of mysterious when it happens, why it happens, but it does occasionally, partly because you encounter people in a space of some vulnerability, I think like emotional vulnerability, that's certainly true in faith-oriented institutions, but also, you know, young people in universities are at a point where they're asking a lot of questions and they're also at a point when they've got many of them multiple directions that their lives may go and they're looking for reasons to think hard about why things might go one way for them as opposed to another. So there are kind of inflection points that you um, encounter in both of those institutional spaces. Almost by definition, policy-oriented solutions can't think about the whole person. You know, they deal in the mass, they deal in the aggregate, they deal with what's likely or with what's probable. Education and faith are places where you can think about what's possible, about how the world might be different, about how you could do something other than just tinker at the margins. As part of the Shelter Project, the Luce Foundation's Theology and Religion program wrote a check to the New Brunswick Theological Seminary, and the seminary, in turn, passed most of the money to the Reformed Church of Highland Park's Affordable Housing Corporation, which we discussed in a previous episode. Carrie Dirks is the Director of Operations there. And she says her group has learned from the sort of past experiences we described, where many institutions were historically disconnected from the day-to-day experiences of people in the community. I think a lot of what we do and the programs that we begin uh, start from a need that we already see in clients that we're already serving. I mean, the Affordable Housing Corporation itself began out of the church, right, the Reformed Church of Highland Park some of the people in the church were concerned about what happens to kids when they age out of foster care, right? They turn 18 and all of a sudden they don't have access to all these benefits and they're on their own. So what happens? Um, And so the church and the church members decided that they wanted to build housing. And so to do that, they formed the Affordable Housing Corporation, which is its own 501c3, to sort of really address that. And that was really sort of the start of the organization is really by listening to what people were concerned about right? And it really has grown from there. I mean, all the things that we do that are about uh, displaced people, refugees, immigrants, asylum seekers, you know, undocumented people, that came out of a group of people going over to Elizabeth Detention Center two to three times a week and visiting people who are detained there. You know, people had heard from the community that, you know, hey, they have people detained there in this warehouse. We should go find out what's going on. So they started visiting them and started learning about their lives, started learning what their challenges were. And so little by little, you know, the community got to know what are the things that people need, right? And you can really trace, you know, all the things that we do, I think, with immigrants and refugees and displaced people kind of to that first sort of commitment to like being with people and listening to people. 
That commitment extends to the highest levels as the Affordable Housing Corporation complies with a federal law requiring that at least one-third of its board of directors be representatives of the low-income communities it serves. And Carrie says that makes a big difference. I think the impact is that there's always people at the table who have had firsthand experience with some of the issues that are being presented. You know, and any organization, things can get very high level sometimes, right? Especially if you're just like kind of looking at like overview finances and, you know, that kind of thing. But there's always somebody at the table who can bring it back down to a very personal level. You know, well, this is actually what it's like. And, um, you know, I was talking to so-and-so and they're struggling with this. And I think it helps us to remain very close to what the current needs are in the community. And it helps us remain close and true to the mission, which is really to provide housing and to provide services to people who need it. Now, to be clear, this is no easy task. Since some of the individuals the Affordable Housing Corporation sought to help with the loose money were folks who might have been considered some of the most difficult to house for a variety of reasons. Like maybe they had serious mental health issues or untreated drug or alcohol dependencies. Plus, in the middle of the pandemic, the need was urgent. But Carrie said she and her colleagues were up for the challenge. Crisis situations are chaotic by nature, right? And to respond to it in a timely way, you don't necessarily have time to build a whole infrastructure around how it might work. So I think just being really flexible and realizing that you're going to work hard and that, you know, sometimes there's going to be some missteps, but you're really going to sort of put your best foot forward. I mean, I think what worked really well was just that initial infusion of money that allowed us to kind of take an inventory with partners of like, who have you been trying to help for a long time? And like, there just isn't something out there for them. Like, what can we do? And sort of pairing that infusion of money with our ability to like go out and find rental units and sublease them for people. We were able to do it quickly. Uh, We got people housed. That said, Carrie remains cautious when asked to evaluate the lasting success of her organization's work. I mean, there's no doubt that for the people that were housed, that solution at that time was, you know, a godsend for them, that they needed that. And to be able to get out of a terrible hotel or, you know, off the street or that kind of thing, you know, during COVID gave them a sense of safety and health that they wouldn't have already had. Um, In terms of long term, you know, I think it's still up in the air. Nobody thinks that nonprofits can solve these systemic issues all by themselves. Nonetheless, looking back at the shelter project, Kristen obrassel Colfin from the Rutgers Public History Program says there are a few key takeaways. I would like people to recognize how close we all are to being part of this population, to enumerate what it would take for you to be in the shoes of the person that you see on the sidewalk asking for lunch. Because I think that we are all, perhaps most of us, uncomfortably closer to that than we acknowledge. And that thinking about that can create a far deeper sense of solidarity than any well-reasoned theoretical intellectual argument because you're thinking about shared material circumstances and kind of bare human survival. But the other thing that I wish people would know from having done oral histories and having conversations with people in these communities is that there's a level of resilience and creativity and deep knowledge that makes it possible for people to create solutions for how they're going to survive on a daily basis that we really take for granted and I think don't see in most of the spaces where most average people interact with these populations. 
As the Shelter project was wrapping up, our editorial team reflected on the way the project's collaborative design required them to integrate who they were as humanity scholars, artists, people of deep convictions or faith traditions, and members of particular communities. Here's Colin Yeager again, who directs the Rutgers Center for Cultural Analysis. He's also a parishioner at the Reformed Church of Highland Park, which played a key role in helping dozens of families secure housing in the midst of the pandemic. You never know when pieces of your life are going to collide, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Right. That has been an interesting thing for me in this project. There's, like, my life as a member of that church and, like, being influenced by just their way of being in the world and their way of addressing the world. And that obviously filters over into my working life in some ways that are hard to quantify, but I mostly lived in as two separate pieces of my identity. So this project was interesting because it brought them into much closer contact. But then also just the randomness of, of the kinds of connections that we make. Because we, we sit in more than one space. But that's more about being creative in a moment when you think like, here's an opportunity, who could I call? This integration of our whole selves felt different from some community-based initiatives in higher education. Kristen O'Brassel-Colfin from the Rutgers Public History Program says many projects don't have a lasting impact because educational institutions or individual professors have limited investment in the community in the long run. I think that that is something that you see a little bit in public humanities fields of like people who are doing that kind of work inside of the academy because trying to think about how projects live on rather mm-hmm. than those kind of swoop in, extract, document, <laughs> write up and leave, right, kind of model that has been community partnership at universities for so long and has defined, like, Rutgers' relationship to the community for a really long time. I am thinking about that. And I think we do in the academy, too, a little bit with, like, generations of students who are being trained. Nathan Jeremy Brink from New Brunswick Theological Seminary had some thoughts on where the Shelter Project goes from here. I continue to teach with the materials, and I think incorporating the Shelter Project into our Analyzing the Systems of Privilege class that is a core course required for all seminary students is a massive change to our core curriculum. And That curriculum was revised with me inserting questions of housing insecurity and economic vulnerability as an entire unit. So if they're thinking about these issues, if they're committing themselves to some kind of ethical action in the world for the sake of justice around these issues, and then they're finishing at our institution and either continuing to serve in churches and nonprofits all over the state and the region or leaving and then getting their first appointment to a position in ministry or service then hopefully they take that with them so that's a pretty significant ongoing place Mm -hmm. where this lives in terms of the seminary Kristen also discussed how she's using the project in her teaching, incorporating the oral history interviews we gathered in her core curriculum, History of Homelessness course. We had 100 students enrolled in that class last fall when it was offered for the first time. I think that's bringing the voices of the interviewees, people who received assistance through the project, to the ears of (laughs) undergraduate students who live in this community. So it's Mm -hmm. inherently valuable for that reason. She thinks that her students can ask different questions about the past. 
But it's also useful, I think, for thinking about epistemology because we're inviting them to hear these narratives as a source of knowledge about the experience of living in poverty or living housing insecure lives locally and then putting those as sources into conversation with historical sources documenting some of the same questions and issues and themes has made me think differently about histories of poverty and how I'm teaching them to students, right? That I'm inviting students to say, this is a narrative that a person constructed as your neighbor, you know, a couple months ago, right? How do you hear that differently than when you're reading these sources about people experiencing poverty and homelessness in the 18th or 19th century United States? How do we know what we know about the past? And it's through these kinds of, of sources. So basically, they started to view oral histories as the way to fill gaps in the present that we can't fill for the past, right? We can't go back and, and kind of piece together all of those narratives, try as I might, <laughs> but we can make them now so that in future we have that, right? <laughs> right? Which I think is... I'm not saying it's going to, like, change the world, but, like, a couple of students were like, whoa, I never thought about it that way. Yeah, yeah. Archive generation mm-hmm. as a kind of way of affecting the future. Mm-hmm. It's pretty interesting, actually. Hmm. The benefit of what we have produced as a body of knowledge is it's incredibly accessible. So the transcripts themselves, even if you knew nothing around this person's experience you could sort of tap into some of the stories of vulnerability but also like humanness and resilience Mm -hmm. and resourcefulness in that story so some of the things that we have generated as like a knowledge base it's accessible in a way that scholarly writing is not the structural change that's needed is not going to come from a church or a university, or an educational institution, but rather, it's going to have to involve thinking differently, having access to new voices that change our epistemology around vulnerability. It's going to have to inspire us not just to respond to disasters, but to engage in processes of social analysis and doing justice in and for community. The Shelter podcast series is a production of Rutgers University New Brunswick's public history program, the Rutgers Center for Cultural Analysis, the New Brunswick Theological Seminary, and Colab Arts. Our editorial team includes Dan Swern, Colin Yeager, Nathan Jarmy Brink, and Kristen obrazel Colfin. Thanks as well to Kristen for conducting the interview with Dr. Alexandria Russell and to Nate for recording that conversation with Dr. John Coakley. We also had production help from Ala Gitan, and our theme music is by Dave Seaman and Carlos Vasquez. This series was made with the generous support of the Henry Luce Foundation. As we've been telling you each episode, this podcast is just one element of the larger Shelter Project. You can learn more about everything else we've done by visiting our website at shelternj.org. And if you've enjoyed the series, we encourage you to please spread the word on social media or tell a friend. I'm Diana Molina. And I'm Scott Gurian. Thanks for listening. Actually, we have one more thing to tell you. As we've previously documented on this podcast, 
Besides housing people, the shelter project also included the collection of oral histories and a variety of artistic responses to the housing crisis, like a short play, a board game, and an interpretive dance performance. All of this was intended to raise awareness of the problem and motivate people to action. The final artistic response was a refugee mural in the neighboring town of Highland Park, and the story of that mural is a fittingly complicated coda to our project. The mural features three portraits referencing refugees who spoke to us from areas of Northeast Africa and the Middle East around the Red Sea. The main theme illustrated in the piece is radical hospitality, by which we mean a willingness to challenge our own comfort for the sake of another's. This is a trait we've seen practiced by those who serve these particular communities. Here's Dan Swern from Colab Arts describing the idea behind the mural. The original vision centered on clearing a path for refugees and asylees to build lives and find homes in the United States. After our community conversations, we shifted direction. The people we spoke with, one of whom had already spent years in a refugee camp, pined for the opportunity to go home, which for them did not mean the United States. So rather than depict representations of our new neighbors amid symbols of Americana, the mural displays native flowers in the nighttime sky that's visible from the area between Eritrea and Syria. We hoped to convey that hospitality demands recognition of the many places, cultures, and homes elsewhere that together inform our experience. Thus the title of the mural itself, Home is Where We Make It. While the mural was being painted in April of 2022, the artist Amrissa Naranjan was directly racially harassed on three separate occasions, and for the first time in her career, she felt in danger while installing a work of art. Then, less than 48 hours after the mural's completion, it was vandalized twice. Someone scrawled USA in black spray paint over a depiction of a girl wearing a hijab. Later, the same individual returned and spray-painted two stars of David over the girl's face. Dozens coming together tonight in Highland Park because of, well, this. A mural is defaced days after it's finished, forcing a community to confront issues of culture, religion, and race here on the heels of Ramadan. The town of Highland Park came together in a couple of vigils. Community members, elected officials, local Jewish, Muslim, and Christian faith leaders, the Black Community Watchline, and other anti-racist activist groups all spoke out. The graffiti that was brazenly painted on this beautiful new mural and painted specifically over the face of the person who is the most Muslim-looking of the three, was an act of violence. We call upon the mayor, city council members, all of our leaders, to not only be accountable to the protection of its members, but also to stand with us in cultivating peace and safety for everyone. I don't know what anti-racism in the 21st century looks like, but I want to advocate for it, and I want to be a part of a vision of change. So where does this leave us? The mural will be repaired, yet both the mural and its defacement are a dramatic reminder of how much remains to be done. We created the shelter project in response to the crisis of houselessness in a moment of public health crisis. The public artwork was intended to be a kind of final meditation on the meaning of home, neighborhood, community, and shelter. And it is that, though not exactly in the way we had anticipated. While the project lacks the apparatus to continue functioning as an engine for community organizing, we've documented our efforts in order to promote student and community engagement. We've tried to provide shelter for our most vulnerable residents. 
Clearly, we all have ongoing work to do, listening to and supporting members of our community. But even after working for shelter, we still need to learn how to dwell together.